So hi, and uh, it's great to be here for the start of this series. We're going to be in this If God Then What series for seven weeks. And particular welcome to you if you're here, if you're new, if you're not a Christian, if this is new to you, if you're here partly because you knew we were going to be doing this and open to looking at some of these questions. I want to kind of take my hat off to you if I, if I had one, because I think it's a really courageous thing to do, to come and explore some of these questions in an environment where people do things quite differently from the way they do in much of the rest of South London. So just really grateful that you're here to think about some of these things. And what we're going to do, I mean, the series is mainly going to be pitched at you if you are new to this, if you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure. I'm hoping the rest of these people will enjoy it as well, but it's mainly pitched actually to help you and to think through some of the big foundational questions that we all have to wrestle with, not just Christians, but everybody. And the way we're going to do it is take one big, chunky, hairy, foundational question every week about the world. And this week, that question is going to be, how do we know? Or in the video, how do you decide what to believe? How do you know? What's knowing like? How does it work? How do you decide what to believe? So for example, there'd be some people who would say, The way you can know things is you can know them through maths or through scientific proof. So you can prove knowledge. All knowledge is provable. So you go 2 plus 2 equals 4, you can prove it. Or water boils at 100 degrees, you can prove it. But that's knowledge. Everything else is superstition or speculation, but it's not really knowledge. If you want to know something, you need to know it through maths or through science. That would be, that's quite a common view. And then there'd be others who'd say, you can't even know that. You can't even know those things because those things assume that the world you see is the world that is. But how do you know that? You might be in the Matrix. You, know what, you watch the movie The Matrix? It's kind of a, it does your head in because you're sitting inside, uh, the human race is sitting inside a vat being harvested for electricity by robots. And if you haven't seen it, it's, I know it sounds weird, but it is good. But it really does your head in because you think all of the things that I think I can see are just electrical impulses being created by a machine to make me think they're real. And some people would say, you can't know that the outside world is even there. All you can know is that you experience certain things. That's all you've got. So some people would take a very, very skeptical view of knowledge. You can know very little. And then there are other people who'd say, no, 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 you can know much more than that. You can know a lot of things. You can know what your religious text reveals, for instance. You can know what the Bible says, or you can know what the Quran says, or you can know what the Bhagavad Gita says. And obviously the challenge is there is sometimes you're finding yourself going, well, how do I know which of those texts is true, given that they disagree with each other? And also, how do I know that I can't do the same with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows or something? What's to say that this text rather than that one is the one I should use and base my belief system on? But Some people would say, do you know what, all of that's very confusing and muddling. I don't know, is it this or this or this? For me, I'm just going to believe what I can see with my own eyes. And so in in the video we've just seen, a number of different people were expressing various of those things. Proving it, it's logical, it's just what I know because I can see it. And you might think it's completely safe to believe what you can see, but actually I suspect that even that, even what you can see, will sometimes let you down. So there's a little exercise you're going to have to do on this video for a moment. You have to count the number of times the white people pass the ball, and you might find that what you can see will even then let you down on occasion. So if you just run that video for a second. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla 
For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half miss the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. So obviously the, the point of the video is you can't always even trust what your eyes see because the way we work is we are so focused on the thing we're looking for that we often miss other things very nearby that are very, very obvious or that should be obvious. And I suspect that whichever one of those ways you would naturally come at the issue of knowledge, whether you'd say, well, it's really provable or what I can see or whatever, probably some of us have just never really thought about it. We just do it instinctively. And we may have turned up this morning thinking, I don't I don't even know why you're making me think about all these things. I, I was hoping for something a bit simpler than that today. But we are, you may be, unless you never watch the, unless you watch the Matrix, you might never have thought about how you know things. But it is a really important question. Because, it, it's actually there's many reasons why it's an important question. But because if I take, for example, one story in Christian scripture, which is really famous. So you might not believe this story. You might not believe the Bible. You might not think this happened. That's fine. The story, this analogy works anyway. But there's a guy in the Bible who's often known as Doubting Thomas, and it's one of the most famous stories in Christian scripture of a guy who didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He kind of hoped that he had, but he doubted that he had. And the story is powerful and rightly famous, and here's a painting of it by Caravaggio. But the, the reason the story's powerful is because Thomas wants to believe that Jesus is risen, but he doesn't think he can know it because he thinks that the only kind of knowledge that you can have is that which you have personally experienced. So even though his friends are telling him, we've seen it, he still doesn't believe it because he thinks that's not sufficient for human knowledge. So he think, his answer to the question, how do we know, is, well, by physically experiencing something or seeing it with your own eyes. So he doesn't think eyewitness testimony is enough from other people. And that's why the story is interesting, because he's then having to figure out, did this happen not on the strength of his own experience, but on someone else's witness to it? And I think there's actually a lot of people very like that in London today. I think a lot of people in London today, including a number of people here, are in a very similar position. We want to believe in some way that the Christian story is true, but we just don't think that knowledge can work that way. And there's a lot of people, there's people like that in this room, I'm sure. A lot of people in this city like that. The Christian story sounds to many people too good to be true. There is a God of love who made the world and who came in the person of Jesus to rescue us from ourselves, to die a representative death so that all the things that we've done to each other and had done to us can get swallowed up in him somehow. And then he's going to liberate the world from death. And his kingdom is spreading to the ends of the earth. And one day all futility will have gone. And death will have gone. And sin will have gone. And sickness will have gone. And all of the universe will be swallowed up in glorious life. And you and I will be raised from the dead and inherit a new creation forever with our loved ones, with him, delighted in and being delighted in. And we, that's the future of the Christian. And if you hear that story, you'd think, well, sounds great. I'd love it to be true. I just don't think you can know that it is. 
And then that's where a lot of people are coming from. A lot of people would say, yeah, resurrection sounds wonderful, but it doesn't sound plausible. It doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you can actually know is true. So many of us, like Thomas, might love for that to be true, but we just don't think you can know it. Here's an example from um, a French atheist philosopher I read recently called Luke Ferry. He's written a book called A Brief History of Thought. It's fascinating. It's a sort of reasonably accessible introduction to the history of philosophy and he's a you know because french atheists are good to read because they don't have to play the game you know they're like well i have tenure at the university of paris and so i can say anything i want and they're very sort of and that they say things that other people think but don't say and here's something he said in that book that really struck me he said compared to the doctrine of christianity whose promise of the resurrection of the body means that we shall all be reunited with those we love after death A humanism without metaphysics, which is what he's been arguing for, is pretty small beer. I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity, except for the fact that I don't believe it. But were it to be true, I would certainly be a taker. I love the honesty of that comment. Atheist philosophers saying, like, I'd love Christianity to be true. The idea that the world gets healed and saved and restored and everyone's reunited and everyone's able, that evil loses and good wins, I'd love that to be true, but I just don't think you can know that it is, which is why I'm an atheist, he is saying. I want it to be true, but I can't believe it. That's Luke Ferry. That's the Apostle Thomas. It might even be you. And it's a, in some ways, it's just helpful to ask that question then. So how do you know? How could you know that it was true? How do you establish whether or not things are true? Well, perhaps the most popular answer in the UK today is to say we know things are true through scientific method. That's how we know. Uh, So we make truth claims on the basis of equations, mathematics, or experiments through scientifically doing a thing in a lab or whatever. So we did a survey in the church I used to work for in Eastbourne. Uh, where we surveyed the town and polled people and said, what are your biggest objections to Christian belief? And we got loads of interesting comments, and one of them was this. Christianity, this person said, is unscientific. Things shouldn't be believed because of 2,000-year-old anonymous second-hand eyewitness testimony or personal revelations or dreams or because an old book said so. Things should be believed because there is repeatable, independently verifiable evidence. You should only believe something if you can repeatedly do an experiment or a verification process for establishing that it's true. Now, the obvious problem with that statement is that you cannot do an independent, repeatable, verifiable test to see if it's true or not. That's the problem. All knowledge should be able to be established by being able to prove it repeatedly, except I can't prove that statement repeatedly. That's the problem. So it actually fails its own test. Because you can't go into a laboratory and do an experiment to see if that statement's true or not. That's the, that's the challenge. But some people, that would actually be quite a common view. You can only believe what you can prove scientifically. Can you prove that scientifically? No. Oh. It's, in that sense, it's not enough. We have to allow, I think, that there are other ways of knowing things that might not be covered by that statement. And actually, while we're at it, if that statement were true, then every arts and humanities department in every university should shut down. I've done a couple of arts degrees myself. They are all based in things that you cannot do repeatable tests on in a laboratory. You can't do a repeatable test to prove that Winston Churchill was a real person or that 9-11 happened. Right? Maybe our eyes deceived us. Maybe, you, know, you can't prove it. 
Julius Caesar was right out the window. So Shakespeare. So is you just can't prove things that way. You can't prove you had breakfast last Wednesday. You still believe it, I expect. Now, some of you are doubting it. Maybe not. But the, now, you might say, okay, cheap shop. That's just a random guy on a website. This is something that is often, things very like this are said by serious people. This is a, from a, a quotation from an article in the New Yorker recently by Adam Gopnik, who was writing, New Yorker's a sort of serious, heavy, you know, like thought influencer pe- uh, magazine periodical in, in New York. And, and he said this. It's actually a very similar comment. And here we arrive at what the nose, which is his word for atheist, what the atheists, whatever their numbers really have now, and that is a monopoly on legitimate forms of knowledge about the natural world. They have this monopoly for the same reason that computer manufacturers have an edge over crystal ball makers. The advantages of having an actual explanation of things and processes are self-evident. Atheism has a monopoly on knowledge about the natural world, this writer is saying. And I saw a response article recently in the Chicago Tribune, and there might be a whole Chicago versus New York thing going on here, I'm not really sure, where uh, a philosopher responded fairly robustly, and perhaps a little bit harshly to that comment, but I thought it was quite an amusing comment, so I've decided to quote it anyway. This guy writes, Did Gopnik bother to read what he was writing there? I ask only because it is so colossally silly. If my dog were to utter such words, I should be deeply disappointed in my dog's powers of reasoning. If my salad at lunch was suddenly to deliver itself of such an opinion, my only thought would be, what a very stupid salad. Precisely how does materialism, which is just a metaphysical postulate of extremely dubious logical coherence, entail exclusive ownership of scientific knowledge? Now, that's a fiddly last sentence, but really what's going on is Adam Gottlich is saying, the only things you can know are this, this, and this, and David Benny Hardy is saying, no, 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 no. You can know lots of other things. That is not the only way of knowing. It is a way of knowing. It's not the whole story. And I think Hart is right. And that's why you believe that you had breakfast last Wednesday, even though you can't prove it scientifically. And it's why you believe that 9-11 happened, and the First World War, and Shakespeare, and the rest. And that's because not all knowledge comes through equations and experiments. Actually, quite a lot of knowledge, I think most human knowledge, comes in a different way. It comes through evidence and through explanations of that evidence. Right? That's how we do knowledge most of the time. Most of the time, we're not doing experiments to decide what to believe. How do you do an experiment to prove the statement, my daughter loves me? You can't do it. What actually you do is you say, no, I have evidence, and then I have explanations of those evidence, and the explanation that fits the evidence the best, it's the simplest and the fullest explanation, that's the one I believe. In other words, we make decisions about what to believe and how we know, not as scientists primarily, but as jurors. As jurors, you do jury service, and what happens is you hear lots and lots of evidence presented. And the evidence is of lots of different types. Some of the evidence comes in the form of scientific evidence, forensic data. And you say, great, scientific evidence, good. It's nice to have that. Although even then, you need someone to explain what it means to you. It's not, you most of us aren't qualified to appraise it, but you have scientific evidence. And then you have documentary evidence. And you might have artifacts And you might have eyewitness testimony, and you might have people talking about the ongoing implications of the event in their lives. So you've got all sorts of different types of evidence that get presented in the trial. And then, when the trial is nearly finished, you hear the defense and the prosecution present two different explanations of all the evidence you've heard. So the prosecutor saying, the evidence shows that this person killed them. And the defense saying, no, the evidence doesn't show that. The evidence actually shows that they've been framed or that this person wasn't even there or whatever it might be. 
And that's how we make decisions about loads of things in normal life. We listen to various bits of evidence. We consider what the appropriate possible explanations are. And then we think, hmm, of those explanations, I think that one provides a simpler, fuller explanation of the data than that one. What you can't do if you're a juror is say, we need independent, repeatable evidence. You can't say, right, murdered guy, get up again. You stand there and then you go, hey, here's a knife. You go in now. Let's watch the scene again and see if he does it. That's not the way any juror can function. Because when you're accessing the past, even if he did do it again, that wouldn't prove he'd done it the first time. That's not the way that human behavior works. And it's not the way that human knowledge works for that reason. What you do is you look at all the evidence, and it's of very different types, and then you hear the explanations, and you say, that one's better than that one. And I think it's exactly the same when you're deciding how to think about whether or not God exists, and whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, and whether or not Jesus is who he said he was. There is eyewitness testimony. There, is, there are documents, there are artifacts, there are relevant scientific and archaeological findings, there are ongoing consequences in the lives of the people involved. Many, many things. And you have lots of evidence like that, and then you look at it all and you say, now which of those explanations that I'm aware of, it was all a hoax, or uh, Jesus is Lord, or these guys suppressed it and then buried the evidence, which of these different stories of explanation makes better sense of this evidence than the others? And having done that, you're then in a position to say, that's the one I believe. That's how, we do, that's how we make decisions about everything. It's actually what scientists do as well, by the way. They also look at the various the evidence and then they propose explanations. They just call them hypotheses. But it's the same idea. So we all do it. And in the case of Christianity, that evidence, if you like, includes things like the existence of the world, the presence of life on earth as opposed to non-living matter, the existence of consciousness, the existence of hope, music, the religious writings of the nation of Israel, the claims to miracles, religious experiences, the problem of evil, the person of Jesus, claims to the resurrection. All of those kinds, there's lots of different kinds of things bound up in that. They're all, if you like, different kinds of evidence that we need to hear laid out and then hear the various explanations and say that explanation of this evidence is better than that one. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of this series doing. So that's, this series, in effect, is like a seven-week journey into doing that. This is like the foundational one. And then we're going to go through and look at some of those bits of evidence and see how they do or do not point to a conclusion. And, just, and I hope, actually, to be reasonably open. Obviously, you know, as a Christian and as a preacher, of course, I'm gonna, I take a particular view. But I hope that in walking through the questions, we will at least open up the way in which we might be able to think about some of these things and consider them for ourselves. And we're going to take questions in just a couple of minutes. But before we do... I want us to circle back to our friend Doubting Thomas for a moment. Because he's called Doubting Thomas by everybody. He always has been. And he gets a bit of a hard time, I think. You know, if you believe in the resurrection, the new creation, you imagine people queuing up to go, ah, you doubted, you, you fool. I would have believed if I'd not been there, but you, silly man. And he gets this bit of a bad reputation as, as a doubter. And sometimes he's even used as a foil by people like me to say, you see, you should never ask for evidence. You should just believe what I tell you which is a dangerous place to go, isn't it? But sometimes people believe things whether or not there's any evidence. That is the opposite of what I'm saying today. I'm saying you do need evidence. Thomas's problem is not that he asked for evidence. His problem was that his view of what counted as evidence was too narrow. 
right? So Thomas, the problem with Thomas is not he's saying, I want there to be good reasons why this is true. His problem was that he was so narrow in understanding what that might look like that he missed the evidence that was already there. So he said, I've got to see it personally, myself. That's the only thing I'm going to count as evidence. Meanwhile, his friends are all around him saying, I've seen it, I've seen it. How else do you explain this? And so in a sense, the problem with Thomas is not, I want evidence. The problem is, my view of evidence is perhaps a bit narrow. And I think there's another sense in which Thomas is not even a villain, he's a hero. And the reason I say that is because even though he was skeptical, and even though his life was probably in danger for doing it, he was still there eight days later. He stayed. That's the power of the Thomas story for me. It's not, oh, he got this wrong. It's, no, look what he got right. Even though he didn't believe it, he wanted to so much that he was still there a week later, hanging on in hope that it might be true and desperate to find out if it was. I think that's probably why he was still there. The gospel story doesn't tell us that, but that's my, you're sort of looking at the man, you think, man, whether this story is true or not, that's what this character is doing, I think. He is hanging in there because he has seen the Jesus of the Gospels healing and teaching and welcoming and including and loving and forgiving and saving for so long that he's thinking, this guy embodies everything I hope God is like. I would love it if this guy's message of the kingdom of God were true. I really hope it is. But then I went to Jerusalem with him and I saw him nailed to a cross and I saw him die and my hope collapsed with him. As he died, my hope for the future died with him. I was crushed. And then I heard two days later, people say, he's alive. And I didn't know if it was true or not, but I was so desperate to find out if it was, because if it was true, then the world is a totally different sort of place. And maybe hope wins. Maybe grace triumphs. Maybe new creation has started. Maybe the resurrection is real. Maybe Jesus is alive. And if it is, and if he is, I really want to know because the world is a different kind of place and everything good is going to be true. And I'm so desperate for that to be true. I'm still there eight days later. I don't believe it yet, but I'm going to hang in there and wait and see. I think that's probably why he stayed. And then when on the eighth day Jesus does walk in and Thomas sees him, he says, probably as much in joy as in repentance actually, my Lord and my God. All of which is to say, If you are visiting this week, and this is your first time here, or you're coming here as someone who's not a follower of Jesus yet, to be part of this series, we'd love to see you again next week. We'd love you to come back like Thomas did next week and go, do you know what? I'm not not convinced yet. I'm not persuaded. I doubt. But I'd like to still be here in a week's time to see if there's any more to this than, than that. I'd love to find out. And even if you don't come back next week, can I also say thank you so much for coming and thank you for giving me your attention. Thank you for having the courage of your convictions even to come in and listen to some of this stuff and think about it together. We're just going to take a few questions now just for probably about five minutes and just see what comes through. We have five, gosh, um, which might take a little, okay. Uh, isn't God just an idea created by human beings? Uh, my answer to that, I guess, would be yes and no. Um, No, in the sense that I don't think the Christian God is created by human beings. I think he is the creator of human beings. But yes, in the sense that everywhere you travel across the human race, we do create divinities of our own. And I think what we do is we look at the world, and then we project the world we can see onto God. So what happens in uh, fertility cults are a great example, right? Sometimes it rains and we get good crops. Sometimes we get drought or plague and we don't get crops. The gods, therefore, must be 
volatile, capricious, moody creatures. So what we do is we see the world and we project it onto God. So in that sense, yes, human beings do create the idea of God everywhere you look. The reason why I don't think the Christian God is like that is because if you were going to invent a God, you would never invent a God like the one revealed in Jesus. Because the world we see is not like the God, the God revealed in Jesus at all. The world we see has ups and downs and quibbles and, dis- and is difficult to make sense of. And good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. The God revealed in the Bible is a God of abundant love and steadfastness and faithfulness and holiness and glory who comes to become a human being. No other religions talk about the creator of the world becoming human. And then dies for his enemies instead of killing them. And then rises again to make them free. If we were making up a God, we would not make up one like this. That would be my basic argument why, yeah, we do make up gods, but I don't think we've made up this one in a nutshell. And then we'll look more at that as we go on in the series. What's the next one? Hard to, it's hard to believe in a God you can't see. I just wish God would prove himself to me. How can you believe in a God you can't see? Nice and easy. Uh, really pleased about that. Yeah. Um, I think, I suppose the way I'd come at this is I think you, we all believe in things we can't see. We all believe in, if you like, absolute values that we can't see. I imagine most people here believe in liberty, democracy, human rights, those things. You can't see them. And we actually all believe in people you can't see as well. Queen Victoria, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, whatever. I think we all believe in people you can't see and in absolute values you can't see. And of course, the thing about Christianity is that in Christianity, the absolute value, which in our case is God, has become a person. But I don't think there's, and that in Jesus, but I don't think that as a result is a, is a reason to reject the idea that you can believe in God because he's invisible. I think you say, no, you can believe in invisible things. We all do it all the time. It's, the difference with Christianity is simply that the invisible person and the invisible absolutes, if you like, are one and the same. But I think, to some degree, we all do that with our knowledge somewhere anyway. So I don't think, that's a, I don't think that means it's easy, but I think we all end up doing it anyway about all kinds of things. Um, so that would be a start, but we'll look more at that as we go through as well. Next one. If science and math don't explain everything, are the conclusions they draw incomplete? <laughs> yes and no. Um, <laughs> no, if they are simply describing the realities that they are, if you like, allowed to talk about. Sci- the science explanation of why water bowls is not incomplete, I don't think. I think it's thorough and wonderful, and I'm very glad it's there, and on that basis I'm able to make tea and the, and the rest, yeah? What an English way of putting it. Yeah? Um, make, make hot drinks of various kinds and do other important things. Um, but I think they are incomplete if they then purport to be thorough explanations of everything. I think that's where... Maths and science, as, if you're a mathematician or a scientist, I'm, I'm, I thank God for your existence. There's so many things, including many things we're doing right now, are only possible because of maths and science. But I think when they purport to be the explanation of everything, including all human knowledge, philosophy, theology, history, that's where I think they go wrong. So I think they're incomplete as a theory of everything, but they're not incomplete with respect to their own fields. One more? Two more. Why are there so many forms of Christianity? Uh, How long have you got? Um, Because Christians are are imperfect people, and we squabble, um, and we sometimes make mistakes, and sometimes we end up, for good reasons, coming to different conclusions about important things. And some, some, some things like that are clearly wrong, but many of them are not clearly wrong. We just differ. And I think that in some ways is evidence to the fallibility of human beings, that even when God has spoken, we still end up arguing amongst ourselves. What we will do, though, is to, on the last week of this series, we are going to look, the, the question is, so what? 
and we're going to look, actually, we're going to land is on how much Christians all everywhere agree on things. And I think you'd be surprised. I think you notice some of the externals, like what people wear and how they have their meetings. But when you get to the essence of who God is and what he's done for the world, you'd find there's a lot more common ground than you think. And it's really exciting that there is around the world. So we will come back, actually, to that as well. But the short answer is because people disagree. Um, And then last one. How can anyone prove the existence of God? Uh, yeah, you can't. Um, and, I, and I think that's okay. And if what you mean by prove is prove in a mathematical or scientific way such that no one with a brain could doubt it. It's just not that kind of a thing. But I think the same is true of an awful lot of knowledge. The same is true of history. The same is true of how, how do you prove that your daughter loves you or whatever. I don't think in that sense you can. But what you can do is to say the existence of God makes more sense of these realities, which we're going to look at in this series, than the non-existence of God does. That's my position. I don't think you can prove it in a lab or on a spreadsheet, but I don't think that means it's not true, and I don't think that means you can't know it. It just means that not all knowledge is mathematically or scientifically provable, which is one of the things I've been trying to show this morning. Thank you so much for your attention and just for engaging even in questions. We'll do more of that as the series goes on. Let me just briefly pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are leading each of us somehow, somewhere on a journey to understand more about some of these tricky things. I thank you that you're doing it for me. You're doing it for people who are here for the very first time and for people who've been thinking about these things for decades. And we pray that as we even spend this time together as a community looking at some of these topics, you would be our teacher, you would be our guide, you'd be our encourager, and you would show us not just interesting things to think about, but the love of God revealed in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.